The Wings Over New Zealand Show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to The Wings Over New Zealand Show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. Uh, I'm sitting here with Peter Wheeler of the New Zealand Bomber Command Association. Hi, Peter. Good day. Um, tell me about the New Zealand Bomber Command Association. Uh, when did it all start and, and how did it come about? It came about about three decades ago. Um, 75 Squadron it always had an association, even from immediate post-war days. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, it didn't represent the majority of the veterans. <coughs> and in the 80s, early 80s, the Pathfinders, um, veterans who had come back from UK, and there was about 300 of them got together to form an association. And they did very well. And then they found more and more ex-bomber command people who actually had no association to go to. Okay. So the president of Pathfinders, Bill Simpson, decided to open it up to everyone who had right. served RAF Bomber Command. Right. And uh, that's how it started. Oh, right. So it was really just an expansion of Pathfinders. Yes, it was. Okay. And so if you look back at the records, you know, the original Pathfinders, um, some famous names, lots of decorations, and they would probably number almost 200, two to 300. Yeah. And then by opening it up, suddenly the membership just blossomed over two years and it went up to about 1,250. Wow. So it's a lot of people. Um, still not the total amount because of the 6,000 who volunteered, 2,000 were killed, which really left 4,000. Yes. So only probably a third of those ever joined up, and yet a lot of those never joined the RSA right. or any other organisation. Right. They simply didn't want to know. Um, but for its size, I've always been impressed just how much clout it's got. And it's only just recently I've thought that the reason why it had so much clout and why so many of them did well when they returned yeah. is because the Air Force not only trained them in maths, um, geometry and so on, but it actually trained them how to learn. Right. And having come back to New Zealand, they may well have been a clerk or a farmer or a labourer, they suddenly knew that they could get education. Yes. So yeah. they went through and they become, you know, lawyers, doctors, dentists, um, accountants, as well as very good farmers or very good professional people. Right. And it's taken me two decades to work this out. And I really think that that's why Bomber Command the association just had so much pull in the hierarchy or in society because it was this group of people who'd learnt how to learn, which may sound funny, yeah. but suddenly said, I don't have to stay in this job all my life, I can progress. So of course when it came to publicity and fundraising, you had this group of people who were well placed in society right. and good contacts to reach much further than you would expect. And it continues to this day. Um, you know, even our membership now is just over 200 veterans. Yeah. Those people still have enormous clout and goodwill around. Okay. So, um, when when did you get involved with the association? Well, I've known some of the veterans for decades, um, from when I guess first went to secondary school. Oh right, yeah. And a lot of the veterans' um, sons went to the schools I went to. Yep. So, of course, we mixed in and um, talked to them. And a little earlier in the, in the piece, 
a very famous movie came out called The Dambusters. Yeah, yeah. And that affected me probably incredibly, like a lot of my mother and my schoolmates, so much so <coughs> that in the weeks following the movie, we actually built a Lancaster out of wood. Yeah. And this was four batus and bits of plank, and we happened to find some perspex, which was the cockpit. And we built it on my back wall. And seeing it was my back wall, of course, I was the pilot. <laughs> but we had gunners and bomb aimers, and by balancing this, this structure, it looked nothing like a Lancaster. Yeah. Each motor was a bit of 4 by 2 with a propeller yeah. nailed to the end. And of course, we stripped our sheds, our father's sheds of wood, and took out framing from the house and cupboards <laughs> and all sorts of things. Anyway, that's another story. But we get to the stage where we had to have a bomb bay, so we balanced this Lancaster over the on the wall, and we'd get a big rock and put it aboard, and underneath, we'd build a, a, a dirt dam yep. and put a jug of water in it, and then we'd fly the mission. And of course, coming in, left, left, right, 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 bomb's gone, and we'd push the rock over, and it'd fall out of the wooden plane, splash into the water, <laughs> which was very successful, so we had a lot of fun. But then one day, one of us had read about the Grand Slam bomb. So this is a massive big bomb, 22,000 pound. So we had to have a bigger rock. So we got this rock aboard, and underneath we built this very complicated um, fort with miniature soldiers and tanks and all sorts of things and we were going to drop this grand slam and unfortunately the thing about it was we in those days didn't know about C of G yeah so as we rolled this huge rock back down through the fuselage or through the box which was happened to be Lancaster of course she overtipped and both the plane and the bomb crashed to the ground on this fort and so we destroyed the fort, but we destroyed ourselves, and that was the end of the Lancaster. <laughs> so I've always, I, when I met, when I met first met Les Monroe, I told him the story how he nearly, nearly killed me by this movie. He was he, uh, he joined in. Yeah. So that went on, not the dropping rocks out of planes, but that went on for some years, um, keeping in touch with the bomber command chaps I knew. Um, until about a decade ago, maybe a little more, when the restoration had been finished on the Lancaster and they were looking to get some more recording done and I went in over a number of weeks and started to talk to them and suddenly I found myself an associate member of Bomber Command. Right. <coughs> so I was invited in <coughs> and the um, first book we produced was Wednesday Bomber Boys, which was basically about the veterans who went there every Wednesday right. and had done for ages and ages. Yeah. And at that stage, they were down to probably uh, 25 or 30 people on a Wednesday. And that had dropped from the days when they were in full restoration of the Lancaster, when they were getting 40 on a Wednesday and 30 on a Sunday. Wow. So in looking at our records. Unfortunately, Bill Simpson, the founding president, was a terrific record keeper. There was something over 200,000 man hours expended on the aircraft and the displays. Wow. And as far as money is concerned, there was something well over $300,000 raised to support it. Okay. Um, so then, with Wednesday Bomber Boys, that, would, that um, promoted the society and the association, then it became. And of course, as things became more complicated, we had to become incorporated. Yep. And in recent years, we've had to become a charitable trust. Um, and all during this time, the executive of Bomber Command and the, the president 
the secretaries were finding things more and more difficult to do simple things like newsletters, yeah. um, keep records, because they, none of them were computer literate. Right, right. And Phil, luckily from, for myself, Phil Ferner was very good. Um, Ian Barron, he's another veteran's son. Yeah. We stepped into the hole and said, look, we can organise luncheons and organise newsletters economically and easily using the new systems. You guys can still enjoy it, but you don't have to put in the work. Right. So we then quite quickly became, I guess, the executive of Bomber Command Association. Okay. Um, and it just flowed on from there. Right, right. Okay. Tell me about the various projects that the Bomber Command Association has been involved in. You mentioned the Lancaster. Um, obviously, they were very um, instrumental in having that restored after it, and getting the hangar around it as well. Um, what else have they been involved in? Once the Lancaster was finished, um, which was approaching 2000, the, there was still a lot of funds available, and there was a huge amount of material being put into the displays, and the Bomber Command boys had built the displays and painted them and set it all up. Um, and there was a fear that, that with their age, it could all disappear. So the... Um, displays, all the actual items, all the individual items were catalogued and presented to MOTAT um, on a trust deed. And the balance of the funds, which was about $120,000 in those days, was put into a trust fund. The interest was then to assist with maintenance. Yep. Um, one of the difficulties, which, we, which even today now we face, is that the Lancaster was never donated to MOTAT. No. It was donated to the people of New Zealand, which infers the government. So Motat became the caretaker and Boromakmagam became the custodian. And that continues today. So we're looking now as, as in today's life with Motat secure and sound, how do those trust funds operate? Or what's the intention of operating? Right. So with our, our activities today, we have regular luncheons. And because of the age of people, uh, the branches, there were branches in most centres, have shrunk down to small numbers, half dozens, dozens. Yeah. And we try and once you have a major event when we get a hundred, over a hundred veterans come along to. Um, in the last couple of times, we did either chartered buses or the DC three, right, to make it easier for everyone to come. Um, so there's the, those sorts of functions, and people do love them. We issue or produce a newsletter which seems to be getting bigger and bigger. Yep. And that keeps people in touch. And once again, they like to see that. Um, last year, of course, was the two big trips, the New Zealand Air Force veterans sponsored by the government. And then a later one sponsored by private individual, Ian Cooperus, for the RAF people. Yes. Um, but prior to that, we we knew that the memorial was going ahead. And I was in London to make sure that the Kiwis would be involved in it. And at that stage, the site had just been fenced. Um, and remarkably, that was only nine months before the unveiling. Wow. And at that, that time, we were looking to see how we could fund as many veterans to get up there as possible. So we formed, as usual, a committee, of course, yes. the Nuts and Bolts Committee. And I think you're part of it. Are you no, part no, of it? No. Okay. Um, I think Glenn Turner from 75 was part of it. Uh, Peter Mason from RSA. Anyway, um, 
shortly afterwards, because of a problem with veterans going to Crete, John Key, the Prime Minister, stepped in and said, a future that won't happen, we will fund everyone. And we'd already called for applications to go to England, and so when Veterans Affairs took it over, they we really presented them just with a great big list of people who wanted to go. Right. Um, and while it wasn't a fait accompli, they were duty-bound to honour that as much of that list as they could. Yes. Yeah. Um, which they did. Um, they had to get medicals on a lot of guys, and some missed out for that. But in the end, um, we sent 34 up to the UK. That's, that's remarkable, really, isn't it? When yep. you think about the age of these guys, yep. most of them in their 90s, yep. to get 34 of them up halfway around the world, that's wonderful achievement. And, and they were looked after, you know, wonderfully. And up the other end of the, the um, trip, once the service had been done, we were fortunate in that. There was a 75 squadron association in the UK. Yep. And so it was coincidental that they were having a service the week that our boys were up there. So they then were bussed and accommodated up in Cambridge to go to the service at Meeple and so it felt well. <clears throat> Which again was really, really splendid. Yeah, fantastic. So the boys came home and then of course a month la la after that we had the RAF people. And of course these people had missed out on the trip because they went RNZAF, yep. and therefore not New Zealanders. Yep. The British government did nothing and wouldn't even pay the railway fares for guys living in Britain. Um, Australia wow. stuck to their normal system, which was the association had to pick six yep. only. The Canadians were a bit weird in that they, the Canadian Air Force put on a plane and said, well, we'll pay for the plane, but you people have to fill it and pay for your accommodation. Okay. But in the end, a lot of Aussies went independently. But the New Zealanders were sort of the star attraction because of the way the government had treated them. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, that's great, actually, isn't it? Because it's, oh, usually, it's, it's usually the other way around where the government gets the criticism yep. because they're not like everyone else in the yep. world. So that's good. So then we had the RAF guys go up there and remember Jonathan Pote, he's a squadronary doctor. RAF, and he was the tour leader, um, and we had six go on that with their partners rather than caregivers, and they had a wonderful time too. Right. Um, again, over a, a three-week period, that was a, a remarkable trip. Um, so there have been two major things we've done in the last while. Our current efforts are to produce a memorial trophy for the RNZAF. Uh, we've had Richard Taylor Weta do the design. Yep. It's going to be cast in bronze. Um, we've been a, lucky to have a sponsor to put up the $12,000 it's going to cost to produce. Right. And we hope this will be presented to the Chief of Air Force at a Bomber Command annual reunion. What will the trophy actually be presented for? Or in who too, sort of it's a design which is perhaps similar to the current New Zealand Bomber Command Association Memorial um, Bronze that's in the Auckland War Memorial Museum. Yep. Um, so it's one of those figures but enlarged and we have put a note on it that's for excellence. So it means it can be a wide ranging thing. It doesn't have to be for the top pilot or the top yep. navigator. It could be for an Air Force photographer. Okay. who does a superb job. So it's there to recognise anyone in the Air Force. 
not that's, just aircrew. That's great. That's yeah. really good. Every year it could be a totally different sort of yes. story. Yes. Yeah. Um, and the, the other reason for doing it is because as the Air Force becomes more technical, there are a lot of trades probably we never even thought of yet are yeah. going to appear. Yeah. So if you're talking about a Memorial Trophy trying to be everlasting, it's got to be very flexible. So in years to come, it might be a drone operator. Right. Will win it. Yeah. Right, yeah. Okay. Uh, one other project I was thinking of that you guys have been involved in is um, building a replica of the um, uh, Grand Slam bomb, haven't you? That's right. The, um, it came up three years ago when the, the restoration team, the Wednesday team, had run out of jobs to do. And they said, what are we going to build next? And we could build a bouncing bomb, and they looked at the size of that and thought it was a bit unspectacular. And the leader of the bunch, Murray Rolfe, said, well... We'll build the biggest one, which was the 22,000 pounder. And that took us uh, just nearly three years to construct. So it's a full size replica. It doesn't explode. It's not a perfect shape, but it's as close as we can get it. And now that sits underneath the Lancaster. Unfortunately, a lot of the children think it's a rocket, <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's certainly impressive size. Yeah, it's massive. It really yeah, massive. And uh, was it last year? Yeah, last January you had uh, uh, Tony. Um, oh, Tony Iverson. Tony Iverson came out from Britain. Yeah. Uh, and and you had two Dan Costa pilots there at the dedication of it. Yes. Yeah, we did. Um, we've got um, four, I think, in New Zealand at the moment. So, and we've also got a lot of family because we've got the Gumbleys. Um, they were represented. Yeah. Um, and two other families represented as well. So it was, it was a very good turnout. Um, the other thing that's happened in the last 12 months has been the remodeling and extension of the MOTAT hangar, yes. the massive big hangar. Yep. And, of course, the Bomber Command displays have been all renovated, originally not to our satisfaction. Uh, fortunately, those people are now gone, and we now have some people who are much more sympathetic and we've been able to rebuild the memorial room. Yep. And that was rededicated by the chaplain of the Air Force last March. And the ops room has now just been finished. And that was dedicated on just last Wednesday. Okay. And present of that was Graham Turner, who's the sole remaining pilot on that raid. <clears throat> so he came over and, and uh, yeah, he was very impressed with it. Um, so we've now got three or four more sections of that display to upgrade. Um, the MOTAP people themselves have, have become very proactive in that they've taken a program which Bomber Command financed about eight years ago, which is a um, interactive program where you can enter a name of a missing airman and it'll come up with details of his loss and what happened. Right. But they've now remanufactured that, so it's brought it up, um, even including video clips on this massive screen, which is about eight feet by six feet, which is interactive. Okay. So you can type in the name of a missing relative, it, it'll search the database, bring up all of his details, and then with Google Earth maps, it'll show where he took off from, the target he was destined for, and in fact where he crashed. Yep. It'll bring up a photo of his Commonwealth War Grave. Yep. And then if you touch on the aircraft, it'll bring up details of the aircraft. And then it'll bring up various movie clips. 
and it's when it's fully commissioned, it'll be accessible by families who can add personal information and photographs onto that site. Brilliant. And that will then be linked to the Bomber Command site and, of course, Wings Over New Zealand. Yeah. So it becomes a huge interactive system. Um, and all they're doing is downloading Google data or accessing Google data, Minister of Defence UK, um, National Archives UK, and their own National Library, I think it's the beta system. Right. So it's going to be a, an amazing piece of kit. That's fantastic. Yeah, and that's that goes sort of one step further, whereas if you go to Bomber Command site now, we've got um, interview movies running, yep. done by Richard Carstens. We've got uh, documentaries running uh, by Into the Wind, yep. an English company. Oh, no, Steve um, Hatton. Hatton. Steve yep. Hatton. Um, and we've got an interactive um, panel in front of the aircraft where you can touch on any crew position and you'll have an interview with someone who actually flew in that position. Okay. So it's now becoming a very um, modern type of system. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's on there. And um, another thing that um, you mentioned earlier was your your book, uh, Wednesday Bomber Boys, but you've also written a subsequent book, haven't you, uh, on a similar topic? Well, one of of my pleasant tasks is to get to know and meet as many of our veteran members as I can throughout the country. And in visiting them, the amount of material that they're still holding onto is just phenomenal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, not only photographs, but copies of, of uh, operations sheets. Um, some of them still have their nav sheets on from the raids. Yep. They have their target photos. And I suddenly realised there was just so much material that was that was sitting there, uh, never been published, obviously of interest. We should do something about it. So over a period of three years, I put together Wednesday Bomber Boys, which... Um, Really today is not well organised, but it covers such a vast range of subjects. And the idea was to illustrate it highly, so we've got 450 photographs in it. Um, and it covers things from the wives that the men brought back uh, to early days, um, their training. Um, no blood and guts as such, but where their logbooks say their lost gunners shot up, yeah. it says it. Right. So, and that's done very well. The, um, again, the proceeds go to the association, and that's something that continues to sell. Right, right. Oh, great. <coughs> so, so, Wednesday Bomber Boys and Kiwis Do Fly, have you got any other books uh, in the future? Well, Dave, we talked about this earlier today, but <laughs> um, yes, there's, there's just so much material available. And we're fortunate in that many of our members have, in fact, privately written up their own stories um, from their diaries and logbooks and so on. And and we're fortunate in that we are given copies. So there's there's still huge amounts of material available. The question is, are we going over the same ground? Um, A story is an interesting story the first time you read it, but is it? the 10th or 15th time you read it. Yeah, yeah. And there's only so much variation you can make. But what doesn't go away are the, the, the images, the cartoons, the photographs, the lists, um, 
And it's that sort of material that somehow, yeah, it, it could produce one or five books. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the question is now is how we do we produce it so it becomes very accessible? Now, I'm a book person. I love a book. But really, when I look at what is going on at, at MOTAT and the Bomber Command site, they're trying to make all of that type of information understandable and accessible for 10-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 30-year-olds yeah. who don't have the same background we do and to make it on, available in a position they can go through it lightly or if they find a particular item of interest they can really dig down and get all the information about it. Yes. Um, probably the service we do most is with our archives and I think today I was told that we've got 6,000 photographs on the archives wow. is that every week we get inquiries from TV producers, documentary makers, authors, and particularly families right. wanting information. Do you have a photo of this person? Do you have a photo of this aircraft or the squadron? Yeah. And we're getting to the stage now, we're starting to satisfy some of these things and we're starting to find an interesting cross-reference on that in a lot of group photos. There are people in there whose families would love a copy of it. Yeah. So this is a really growing part of, of our archives, and that will continue, especially as families do family histories and want to know what granddad did. And it seems to be the younger generation that are really interested in this information. Right. And funny enough, when, we, when I go around and do these interviews, um, normally there's a family member present in the background, and often they will say, I've heard things today that he's never said before. I found exactly the same thing with uh, interviews I've done with veterans. And, yeah, you do find that. And particularly, it might be a grandson or a granddaughter that will be sitting in and just listening because because they, they've never they've never experienced it and they're just curious. And yeah. it's great. But um, on that note, though, um, you say that there's the interest from the younger generation uh, in, in everything that's going on and, and there's ways of making these records and archives and photos more accessible now but are you finding that the younger people are actually joining the association and joining in uh, and getting involved or is it just they're only there for their own grandfather and that's it and then they, yeah, just, I think and they disappear I think you're right um, so the people who join the association as associates uh, probably aviation enthusiasts. Yeah, yeah. With a particular bet to bomber command. Yeah. Um, we don't get, or we get very, very few family members actually become full members of the, of the association, even though it's free. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so they just don't do it. Active members no. that continue. You know, that's, the, that's the thing. And um, as the veterans get fewer and fewer, mm. as they are, um, where do you see the, the sort of future of this, the association? Um, well, Dave, that's one of the real problems because with all of these archives, um, while money is set aside, say, for maintenance and so on, they're only any good while they're kept alive and fresh yeah. and, and kept getting renewed. And the, the sources of information now are huge, massive. We didn't have that 30 years ago. It was no. all manual, whereas now it's not. Yeah. Um, so we've got two questions. One is what happens to the archive we've created? And I've talked to 
a lot of people in similar sorts of positions, and it's the big question we can't yet solve. The fallback position is, well, let's give it all to the RSDF Museum in Wigram. Yeah. And at least it's safe, and I think that's a splendid idea. But they will get very overloaded with trying to access that information. Yes. Um, I, I don't know the answer yet. No. It's kind of difficult, isn't it? It is. I've got people who say, look, put it on the market and sell it. Because at least it goes to the people who would value it. But in lots of cases, it'll disappear into the earth again, so you won't yeah. find it. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the next researcher who comes along hasn't got access That's to it right. then. So, um, well, just on a, on a more um, personal uh, note, obviously bomber commanders of great interest to you. Which of the bomber command aircraft is your favourite bomber? Oh, it'd have to be Mosquito. Oh, right. Without a doubt. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, have to be. Um, even though I built a replica quarter size out of wood. Lancaster, <laughs> and I've got one to look after. Yeah, I think Mosquito's got to be the most beautiful aircraft you've ever seen. Yeah. Um, yeah. Between now, the only other, the only one that comes close is perhaps a Tempest, but oh. that's not Bomber Command. No. Oh, mind you, they did do a lot of bombing, didn't they? Oh, yes, they did. Yeah, they, yeah, you know, I've got, I've got friends who are Tempest pilots, so yeah. we shouldn't be too harsh on them. But, <laughs> um, yeah, it would have to be Mosquito, just a brilliant, brilliant aircraft. Of the um, uh, veterans that you've met and you've recorded their stories and, and talked to them, um, what are the stories that really stand out to you? What, what are the really interesting or, or unusual stories that have stuck in your mind? It's very common for people who've been extremely brave, that's an old-fashioned word, but brave and courageous, not to speak about it. Yeah. And you don't get to know what they've done unless you go and prepare to talk to them, yes, and they're prepared to talk to you. Um, some of the really interesting things have been almost asides, and that a lovely lady who's only who she only passed away last week, Yopi Hart, tiny little lady, and her husband Jack was a bomber pilot, Dutch, um, DFC, two tours, became a instructor in Invercargill. And in my second or third visit, he said, oh, do you know my wife was a secret agent? And wow. I said, no. Wow. And he said, um, Yopi, you, you tell him. Oh, no, no, no. She said, I was only ever a florist. Well, it turns out that, yes, she was a florist. But she used, because she was a florist, she was allowed to go out into the forests of Holland yeah. collecting stuff for the shop. And while she was there, she used to note down the sites of all the V2 and V1 rocket sites yeah. and the badges of all the chaps who were wearing them and she'd come back to her shop and uh, another agent would call by her shop to pick up flowers and on the inside of the wrapper would be drawn these badges and the numbers and location of these rockets um, and sh she was arrested and put in jail and they left her there for three months and she told me she could hear the screams it was called the Yellow Hotel where she was kept, could hear the screams and all. But then she was let out, and I said, why was that, Yobi? Why were you let out? She said, I was only 15. Oh. So that's quite something. Oh, yes. It is, isn't yeah. it? Um, and probably the other one who sticks out, and again, and unfortunately not in New Zealand, was a chap, Harry Camish, who's still alive and well, went to England last year. Yeah. And he was a flight engineer. And because he was sick one op, 
his crew got another one and were lost. So he then became a, a spare bod on the station. Yeah. So he flew with all sorts of crews. And on one operation with a crew, he was shot down, bailed out. Um, he was found by a railway porter, French railway porter. Of course, the French railway were very pro or anti-Nazi, right. almost communist, I suppose, but they're anti-Nazi. Yeah. And his problem was he didn't know the name of his crew. He could tell them what squadron he flew with, but he didn't even know the name of the air, number of the aircraft. Right. And so he was kept in quarantine by the um, underground for some weeks, presumably while they were able to get a message to London to yeah. check on his, because otherwise he was going to be a mole, right. and come back. And from that time, away he went. And they dressed him up as a railway porter, and they put him on trains to travel him around France. And he said he, he and he's a Yorkshireman, yeah. so of course he couldn't speak French. Um, and he's not the shape of a Frenchman, but he had to stand there and take tickets off German army people and Gestapo and whoever else on these trains. Wow. Um, as they travelled him through to the south of France, and he said he was only ever caught once where a Vichy, Vichy, Inspector came on and wanted to talk to him, and he said, fortunately, the resistance had put a binder with him, an old lady, who interrupted with a a basket. He talks about a basket being pushed at this um, Vichy inspector, and this old lady apparently went on a tirade of abuse to this inspector being disloyal to France. So he got sidetracked looking after the old lady rather than taking to Harry. Yeah. Anyway, Harry um, finally got right down by the border with Spain and um, was taken up into the hills into a camp, and there was about 50 of them in the camp. But unfortunately, they had a, a mole in the, in the resistance who led on to the German army that there were a group of escapees there. Yeah. And the, the barn was raided. And Harry said and for the second time in his life, he just got up and ran as fast as he could and he said fortunately I got out and funnily enough there were three other key well, there were three Kiwis in that camp and all were arrested yeah. one was later executed in prison and the other two became POWs so Harry sort of laid low for a while and eventually was picked up again by the, the underground and was taken up into the Pyrenees and over the Pyrenees into Spain yeah. and the the guide he had left them at the border, which is way up in the Pyrenees in deep snow. And so he had to wade his way down through the snow to the nearest Spanish village. And um, all his skin turned black with frostbite. Oh, wow. And because it was dead winter, he then had to stay in the village until the thaw. And he said the Spanish people were just lovely to him. He came right, his skin came right. And eventually they got word through to the Spanish police and to the British Embassy in Madrid they sent an MI5 guy up to get him. And he's got some great pictures of being picked up by the MI5. Right. And subsequently to that, of course, he was flown back to the UK. But because he'd been helped by the underground, he could never fly operations again. Right. And he said he had the most perfect life because he then became an air traffic controller. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so there are two people who, unfortunately, neither New Zealand, um, who who did you know really remarkably brave things? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. and they've left a real impact on you. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, tell the uh, listeners where you where they can find your website. 
Uh, just Google Bomber Command, use NZ Bomber Command, or go to NZ Bomber Command Association.co.nz. Cool. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.